We'll hear argument next to number 036821, David Nelson versus Donald Campbell. Mr. Stevenson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Six days before Petitioner's scheduled execution in this case, an execution that he had sought and informally uh, requested be, be carried out as soon as possible, uh, prison officials uh, went to him and for the first time told him that to deal with a medical problem that both parties acknowledge exists, he would be subjected to a uh, procedure that would be conducted by state officials, not necessarily medically trained, not necessarily uh, licensed, where they were going to make a two-inch incision in his arm, cut through fat and tissue and muscle until they had a vein that they could access for the purposes of inserting well, a catheter. presumably, at a much earlier date, the prisoner did know that he, he, was, he would be scheduled to be executed by lethal injection. Absolutely. And he did know his veins were compromised. Absolutely. And as soon as he so So presumably, well in advance, he could anticipate a problem. Yes, Your Honor, and he did. He immediately began contacting the warden at home in prison. He was housed in another facility uh, some 200 miles away. He immediately began contacting the warden at home in prison, who had just been installed, who did not know him, and informed him he had this condition that they would need to create protocols necessary to deal with it. The state admitted that they had never dealt with someone in this condition before and began offering all kinds of things that would accomplish this execution. Let him bring in a physician that can insert a catheter. Uh, Let's get some protocols established so that we don't have any problems. And for six weeks, essentially, um, this effort was being made. He had been previously told uh, that they were going to do this 24 hours in advance, that they weren't going to make this kind of two-inch incision. And even though he hadn't been assured there'd be medical people, he was relatively comfortable with that. He did not file suit. It's only six days before, for the first time, that the state announced that they would have this kind of invasive procedure uh, carried out by someone who is not necessarily medically trained. He filed a 1983 action, and I think it's important for this Court's judgment here today. The district court found that that 1983 action, if it went in Mr. Nelson's favor, would not invalidate his judgment or conviction. Notwithstanding that conclusion, the district court felt compelled to apply a rule in force in the Eleventh Circuit that effectively shields death row prisoners facing an execution from doing anything that can challenge unconstitutional conditions of, of confinement. The Eleventh Circuit rule is essentially once you're scheduled for an execution, it doesn't matter that the prison begins to do something and announces something uh, that, that is unconstitutional. They're, they're, they're not saying that. Uh, they can bring actions that uh — uh, the challenge unconstitutional conditions of confinement. He's being kept in a dank and dark cell that's, that's uh, cruel and painful. 
the only thing they're saying he can't bring is, is an action that in effect says I can't be executed the way the state intends to execute me, that that has to have been brought up earlier. Yes, and, and I, I guess that's our has to, has to be under habeas rather than under 1983. Yes, and, Your Honor, I, I guess our position is, is that this action is like the action that you describe. He is challenging medical treatment, medical procedures. He doesn't say he doesn't want to be executed. He's not trying to block his execution. It's unlike these other actions in this one crucial respect. Its effect is to prevent the execution. Now, I think the effect here was to facilitate the execution. Mr. Nelson went into court saying, let's just get an order so that my doctor can come in and carry this out. Let's just get a temporary restraining order on this two-inch incision, which makes no sense. The, the court, the district court judge says, can't you lawyers work this out? Mr. Nelson's counsel was ready then and there to effectuate a procedure that would carry out this execution. And the Eleventh Circuit judgment, Justice Scalia, is actually one that says once the petitioner is scheduled for an execution, it doesn't matter whether it's a conditions of confinement suit, as you describe, that the federal courts somehow have no authority to grant relief or conduct review because the execution, the scheduling of the execution somehow divests those courts of jurisdiction. That's the 11th Circuit rule. They didn't argue here that because his litigation, because his lawsuit is in effect an attempt to bar the execution, he loses. That's the distinction. What they said here is that because he is already scheduled for execution, doesn't matter what the conditions of the confinement are, whether it invalidates the conviction and sentence. Federal courts have no authority to grant relief. And that's the rule we urge this Court to overturn. May, may I get clear on one thing? Yes, sir. Did he — did his counsel say to the Court, the District Court, we want, under 1983, an order that says, admit this man's doctor to the place of execution at the time the State chooses — so he can find a way then and there to allow the state to carry out the execution when it wants to do it. Did he ask for that? Well, what he asked for, what, what, he, what he put in his complaint was that he had made that offer to the state, and that was in his complaint, that, they, that the defendant's counsel had authorized or requested the opportunity to bring in a physician uh, to facilitate a review. Is that what he was asking for when he went into court? Well, what he was asking for is an injunction barring them from doing this kind of two-inch incision. But, yes, he made it very clear in the complaint. Uh, was it made clear to the district court that he would be satisfied with the order I have just described? Uh, only to the extent — yes, I believe so, Your Honor, because when the district court said, can't you work this out? And Mr. Nelson's counsel said, yes, I think we did, can. Did he ask for a postponement of the execution? He did, Your Honor. He did. And that was in part because the state was, at least at the point at which this lawsuit was filing, saying that this is what they were going to do uh, in, in, in the absence of some kind of federal intervention. What would have been the terms of the postponement that you were asking for? I, I think the district court could have basically issued a cease and desist order. You are enjoined from doing this kind of conduct because it violates uh, contemporary standards of medical decency. Would it have been sufficient to say don't exit postpone it until you admit the doctor to be present uh, and get the catheter in? I, I think it could have been sufficient to say I'm going to order that his physician be admitted into the facility. I'm going to order that you accomplish this through the method proposed by petitioner's counsel. I think all of those things could have been done, but the district court here felt like he did not have the authority to actually deal with this in the 1983 context. Was it that before, Mr. Stevenson, you said that nothing that the prisoner requests once the date of execution is set is actionable in 1983, but I thought that the Eleventh Circuit 
made a distinction between a proceeding that would require a stay of the execution. If he says that prior to the execution, I'm in, in a dark, dank cell, that would be actionable so long as he's not seeking to postpone the date of the execution, as I understand it. And I guess here, Your Honor, what we think is that when the prison waits until six days before the scheduled execution, a complaint can only be filed three days before the scheduled execution. A determination of whether what the prison is proposing is unconstitutional or not well, he, cannot he didn't, ordinarily — He didn't know before that that, that, that this was — no, no, Your Honor. Procedure they were going to use? No, Your Honor. He had been told before that they were going to do something 24 hours in advance. It was only on the Friday before the Thursday. Well, I, I, when they're going to do it is not the issue. Is what they're going to do. Well, yes. That's that. He was told for the first time on that Friday, two-inch incision in the arm, not necessarily done by someone medically trained. That presented but, a very different kind but of — But he, he knew that, that something special had to be done with respect to him because he had these compromised veins. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and the record reflects and, that there were repeated efforts on the part of Mr. Nelson's counsel to get the state to, to deal how, with it. How long ago was the conviction for which he was condemned to, to death? The conviction was 1978. The death sentence is 1994. He spent a lot of years on death row under an illegal death sentence that the Eleventh Circuit overturned in 1993. The crime was committed when? In 1978. The death sentence imposed here was committed in 1994, and it's worth noting that even then, Mr. Nelson uh, was very, very sort of unsure about fighting a death sentence. He told the judge he wanted a death sentence. No appeal briefs were filed into the mm-hmm. Alabama appellate courts. At the did, point- did you at any point uh, shape your claim for relief in the alternative, saying that we want either habeas corpus or 1983, or do we take this case on the assumption that almost everybody agrees it has to be 1983? Well, n- no, it was not styled as a habeas action, in part because the Eleventh Circuit rules uh, would have prevented us from ever getting review in this court or any other court if it had been framed in that way. Is, is that is that correct? If if we had to do this in a, a Circuit with no precedence. Uh, could you argue that this would be could be habeas? It's not successive because it's, the issue hasn't come up before. Well, yeah, there, there certainly it's certainly true that other circuits, Justice Kennedy, apply this court's doctrine in Stewart versus Martinez, where a claim, an, an execution claim, not previously right. Uh, can be subject to habeas review. The Eleventh Circuit doesn't. Uh, their position expressed in Enray Medina is that if it wasn't in your first habeas, it can't be presented. What does the statute say? It says it has to be not only not previously ripe, you didn't have the information, but also the statute says it has to show that he was innocent. Y- yes, and that's why we, we — So don't. why isn't that conclusive here? I mean, it, it doesn't meet the second condition. Well, absolutely. It's, it's certainly conclusive, Justice Scalia. Well, but of course, it that's assuming be, it's well, successive. That's I, right. I, that's I, right. It, it certainly would not be a successive petition. What we'd be arguing is what this Court has already held, that an unripe execution claim of the sort of a competency-to-be-executed claim, which this Court held in Stewart was cognizable, would be proper. In the Eleventh Circuit, that's not possible. But you don't have to go that far, do you? We do not. Because ripeness could be a merely evidentiary matter, whereas in this case, you did not have a claim that you could bring at the time. So this is more than just ripeness. Absolutely. And, 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 Justice Souter, I think you're absolutely right here, where you're not trying to do something that invalidates a conviction and sentence, it's not arguably appropriate to be thinking about this in the habeas context. 2241C says that to grant habeas relief, the petitioner has to allege that the conviction and sentence is illegal, is in violation of the Constitution. That's not Mr. Nelson's contention here. Would you say, would you be making the same argument if his complaint was not this inch cut, but the combination of chemicals? 
N- n- no, Your Honor. I think that's a much different, much harder question because that does, it seems to me, get closer to the execution. What's analogous to our claim is a claim where the prison says a week before the execution that we're going to and effectively shackle you to a hitching post and not give you any food for 72 hours. We contend that that kind of treatment would be in violation of the Constitution. What we'd be trying to block is that treatment, not the execution. The reality is, in this case, you know, as you know, we've we've turned down uh, uh, certiorari in in, in these cases, uh, challenging the type of drug used. What what is the difference between you know you're using a drug that's that's going to hurt me, Mm -hmm. and you're using uh, a catheter procedure that's going to hurt me? I think the primary difference, Justice Scalia, is that those are method of execution cases. They are challenging the method of execution. Here we have a procedure that is not even unique to executions. Well, venous access can come. They're they're not challenging the method of execution. If you want to execute me by drugs, they're saying that's perfectly fine. Just don't use a drug that hurts me. And just as here, you're saying if you want to execute execute me by lethal injection, that's fine. Just don't use a manner of lethal injection that hurts me. I find it very difficult to separate the two well, I guess categories it, of case. It's not clear, Your Honor, that in all of those cases that they are saying if you want to use a different drug, that's okay. I think that that's one distinction. I think the second distinction is that in order, particularly in states that have statutes dictating which chemicals can be used in those cases, it may be easier for a court to find that an order in that case does invalidate the sentence. Here we have a completely severable procedure. We have something that is not in any way required by the execution. And, and the state is saying, we want to do it this way. And there are a hundred other ways that it can be done. And, in fact, it's just the discretionary conduct of the state prison officials well, was that it, puts was us it, in this situation. Was it any more than the presence of his own doctor to make the cut that he, he was asking for? No, Your Honor, and it wasn't even — he wasn't even insisting on that. He was prepared to have their doctor come in. He was promised a doctor when he got to the prison. He never saw one. There was never a physical — never a doctor to examine him. Well, but this isn't a contract action. Huh? No, no, Your Honor. I'm just suggesting that there was — he wasn't insisting on this being carried out in one way. There were dozens of, of, of offers of, of carrying this out, including being executed by electrocution. Uh, something else that the state rejected as 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 an option for him. But he did he did want more than a doctor. He didn't want this procedure to be used when there was an alternate procedure that would be safer, less painful. Yes, it's our position that this procedure is unconstitutional. It does not comport with contemporary standards of medical decency. It's a procedure that is rarely done. When it's done in hospital, it's done under deep sedation. That there are all of these alternative procedures that could be done very easily. Uh, a percutaneous uh, uh, insertion would be very easy to accomplish. There are Doesn't lots that of- require a cut as well? No, ma'am. It, it would just require a, a, a needle, a hollow needle with a wire inside, and, and, and they would then access the vein that way. It wouldn't require the kind of incision and all of the kind of uh, auxiliary uh, support. But that to sounds to me more like uh, uh, the mode of execution with the, with the drugs that you said were, was distinguishable. No, no, they wouldn't effectuate the injection that way. They would just actually get access to the vein that way. And, and, and this could be done, Your Honor, uh, 24 hours in advance. It could be done some time in advance. Uh, there was no objection uh, expressed by Mr. Nelson in any of the lower courts to that procedure. But again, all of these issues we never got to in the district court. There was never any opportunity to develop facts, to have discussion, to have argument, to resolve a basic problem. If a challenge is brought to the use of lethal injection as a method of execution, how must that be brought? In habeas? My position, Justice O'Connor, would be if I'm representing someone, I would put that in habeas. 
uh, mostly because that's, there's some historical precedent for those kind of challenges coming in habeas. Uh, I think you are, in effect, saying that the sentence is invalid. Uh, it, it should not be carried out. This comes close because you say it's unconstitutional to proceed with lethal injection under these circumstances. No, we try really hard to not say that. What we say, it is unconstitutional to proceed with venous access in this manner, to conduct medical care in this manner. It violates recognized standards of medical care. And that's what we're saying you cannot do. We have no objections. Mr. Nelson doesn't object to lethal injection. He doesn't even object to venous access. What he objects to is some kind of inhumane cutting but people are not qualified or competent to do that. And like any other condition of confinement, the fact that he is near an execution, the fact that he has been scheduled for an execution, shouldn't exempt him from protection if the state at the last minute announces that this is what they intend to do. This has not historically been a big problem. There have been over 700 executions in this country involving lethal injection. What is, a, as a lawyer who works in this area, what do you think is the correct procedure that should be followed in respect to forward mental incompetence claims? or general challenges to a whole big method of execution, not just this individual one, uh, which arise for the first time after termination of a first habeas? Well, Justice Breyer, I, I think you're right. There is a problem. We do have a gap in the law in that the Congress did not contemplate the possibility of execution claims that arise, just as you describe. In the competency context, this Court created a role, which I think is a very functional role. I think it's a very appropriate role. If the facts supporting that claim were not right previously, I think that, and it's a legitimate uh, execution-related claim, I think the petitioner should be able to get access in front of the district court judge that reviewed his initial uh, habeas petition. I think that's the way we should deal with it. Yeah, that may be. So what's the procedural route? That's why I'm curious. This fits into a bigger picture. Yes, yes. And I'd like to be clear about the bigger picture, in your opinion. Yeah, the bigger picture, in my judgment, Your Honor, would be it would be filed as a habeas petition in front of that district court judge Relying on this court. Right. And, you, and you say that it would be count as a first habeas. Well, it would be part of the first habeas. It would basically. Uh, well, what the, what the response to that is, it's very hard to reconcile that with the language of the statute. Well, what this and, and uh, also they add that the right route is to file an initial habeas here or alternatively uh, to go to the state court, at least if that's still open. Yeah. And, in which case it raises no constitutional question about blocking habeas, because yeah. we could review the state court. Yeah. I'd just like briefly your views on that kind of an argument. Y- yes, sir. Well, in Stewart, what this court did was resolve it by saying, no, Congress did not intend uh, to preclude petitioners with legitimate execution claims from getting that. This court has created those pr- protections. Was I there think- Was there anything open to this petitioner uh, in the state an, an, for an application for relief here? No, no Justice O'Connor, unfortunately not. In Alabama, you cannot present a second post-conviction petition, even on claims that, that, that turn on new evidence, on execution claims, on new evidence claims. You have no remedy. And consequently, we would need access to the federal courts to protect uh, Mr. Nelson from the kind of claim that we're presenting here, or even in the kind of claims that Justice Breyer is suggesting. And that's why we do think there is a problem. It's not presented precisely in this case. There is a problem with the way in which there are these execution claims. If some state says tomorrow we're going to change our method and from here on out we're going to stone people to death or beat them to death with baseball bats, and this Court believes that that is unconstitutional, in a place like Alabama, 
to the extent that, that the court construes that as an execution claim, and that's the only way they could carry out the execution, so it might be said that that would invalidate the conviction and sentence, we would need a rule. We'd need to find some way to get access to courts, and we currently don't have it. Your, here. your, your claim here is an Eighth Amendment claim, cruel and unusual punishment. Yes, sir. Right? Um, but, but you say it just doesn't comport with, what, the, the, the most advanced uh, medical procedures? N- no, Anything you're right. that does not comport with the most advanced medical procedures is cruel and unusual punishment? That, no, I mean, I'm, you know. No, I hear you. I hear this you. man is, is looking death in the face. Sure. And, 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 and uh, the crime was committed over a quarter of a century ago for which he was, he was uh, condemned. And, and what he's really concerned about is, is an incision. I find it difficult to contemplate that this constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. Well, well, well Your Honor, I, I, it's not our position that he is seeking and, and demanding the most advanced procedures. What I think he is objecting to is something that we regard as fairly barbaric, to have a correctional staff member come back with a scalpel, make a two-inch cut in his arm, cut through fat and tissue to get to a vein with no assurances that that person knows what they're doing, violates basic standards of medical decency. And it's not just a cruel and unusual punishment. This Court has also created a line of cases under Estelle versus Gamble, they talk about deliberate indifference to serious medical needs. This is a medical care case. Yes, he's in prison. Yes, he's on death row. Yes, he's forfeited some of his basic expectations. But he hasn't given them all away. He's still entitled to be treated with some regard. It's, for it's not the Eighth Amendment. You're saying it's a medical care case. No, it's, an, it's both. We've, the complaint raises both a cruel and unusual uh, uh, theory and a deliberate indifference theory. Both are alleged in the But complaint. it just doesn't fit under deliberate indifference somehow. It's a little bit like the case that the Court of Appeals decided here that you couldn't use a lethal injection because it hadn't been approved by the FDA. Hey, I, I agree, uh, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. I think it, it, it fits more in the cruel and unusual category because it seems so pointless to be doing it in this way. However, for all of this time, there, there was no protocol. There was no response. There was no, um, in effect, uh, Op, um, uh, effort by the state to deal with this problem. And that's why we, we, we made that allegation of deliberate indifference as well. And the district court could make a determination that says, no, following this case, this line of cases, we, 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 we can't make that determination. But here, we never got to any of this. We didn't basically have your, an opportunity. Your deliberate indifference claim is also an Eighth Amendment claim, isn't it? Yes, sir. Yes, 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 that's correct. And so we're still dealing with this, the Eighth Amendment universe. But, again, the district court was precluded from getting to any of this. If the state wants to come in and say, we think this is silly, we think it is not appropriate for the Constitution to create these kinds of protections for these kinds of prisoners, the district court can make a finding that says, I agree. What happened here, however, was the district court was precluded from ever even engaging in discussion about this issue because of this rule that affect blocks people on death row facing execution from enforcing basic constitutional protections. And that's what we think is objectionable. There are several uh, hundred executions that have taken place, 733 lethal injections that have taken place, where this has not been a problem. Um, This is an an unusual medical problem. It's not a medical problem that usually presents itself. But it presented itself for the first time in Alabama. It's only come up a few times. But we do think there ought to be some constitutional protection. When when did Alabama switch from electrocution to lethal injection? That happened in July of 2002, after Mr. Nelson had already completed his federal habeas procedure. And before that, electrocution was the only option? Yes, sir. Unless there are further questions from the Court, I'd like to reserve the rest of my time. Very well, Mr. Stevenson. Uh, Mr. Newsom, we'll hear from you.
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to make three points this morning. I'd like to first discuss and to convince the Court that a challenge to a state's means of gaining venous access for purposes of accomplishing a lethal injection, uh, a challenge that runs to the very core of the execution process, is indeed tantamount to a challenge to the imposition of the sentence itself and subject to habeas corpus restrictions. I hope also to, uh, to be able to address the remedies issue, which we were discussing with Mr. Stevenson at the end of, of his argument. And third, I'd like to discuss the practical consequences of a decision in Nelson's favor in this case, which I think will be not only to unleash in federal courts a torrent of, of new challenges to all manner of state execution procedures, but also in the process fundamentally to undermine Congress's intent uh, to stem the tide of what President Clinton in his signing statement called endless death row appeals. On, the, on your first point, are you going to address directly whether this is second or successive? I can certainly address that, Your Honor, and I can address it now if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, we simply cannot agree with, with, uh, with Mr. Stevenson's contention here that this is second or success, and I would like to point out to the Court that I, that I think — says no, it's not. I'm, I'm sorry, that it, that it is not second or successive. Um, I'd like to point out to the Court that I think, in fact, there is a concession on the record in this case that it, in fact, is second or successive. Mr. Stevenson, of course, has, has given the Court uh, essentially a two-page footnote in his brief trying to walk away you from You mean if it's treated as habeas? Correct. Our, correct. Our position, of course, is that this, that this sort of challenge is fundamentally a habeas challenge. And I'm, in answer to Justice Souter's question, I think that um, there is a concession on the record. Of course, this, uh, this, this issue, the second or successive issue, was not raised in the lower courts. It was raised for the first time in, in Well, it wasn't raised because he brought 1983. But, I mean, as I understand the, the application of the Alabama rule, 1983 was ruled out because this either should have been brought in habeas or if it had been brought in habeas, it would have been barred under EDPA. And it would have been barred under EDPA because it was second or successive. So I think regardless of, of how we analyze it, we've got to get to that point. And, and our position certainly is, Your Honor, that this would have been barred as second or successive. I think Justice Scalia really hit the nail on the head. It is uh, Mr. Stevenson and his argument just has not done business, I think, with the textual and structural gymnastics required uh, to, to, to make this petition anything other than second or successive. Uh, his position, in essence, is that any claim that is new in the sense that it could not have been brought before uh, is, by definition, not second or successive. Well, isn't that a possibility? In other words, one of the things we've got to do is, is, is give effect to the, to the Edper text. Uh, we can give effect to the <clears> — <throat> I'm not saying that we should read it this way, but we could give effect to the Edper text — if we say uh, that um, regardless of whether a claim was ripe or not as a factual matter, so long as uh, there is new evidence, whatever new means, uh, the evidence uh, is, is not going to entitle him to relief in, unless it satisfies the, the, the innocence prong at the end of the test. We could say that and at the same time say, all right, that's how we give effect to EDPA. But if there is something more than ripeness, uh, which makes the difference between bringing the claim and not bringing the claim, then that goes to whether we should regard it as second or successive. There is something more here, because this is a claim which simply did not arise. He could not have pleaded this claim at any point prior to the conclusion of, of his habeas. And for that reason, we should interpret second or successive as not barring this, because otherwise we would have a universe of claims 
assuming they are proper habeas claims, that could never be brought, even though they state a constitutional claim. My own sense, Justice Souter, is that that might just be slicing the bologna a little thin. Uh, Congress, the, the point of Section 2244, in, in my view, is certainly to get at claims that, for whatever reason, could not have been brought earlier. Uh, and I think but the, that's, that's, that's fine, but, I mean, that's a conclusory statement, for whatever reason. What I'm suggesting to you is that this is a good reason to say that the term second or successive does have some limiting effect. Perhaps, but I think that we are coming awfully close simply to, to reading the limitations that Congress imposed on these sorts of petitions out of the statute. If Congress felt that way, they simply wouldn't have added the second condition. That's certainly the position that they would have just said the facts, the factual predicate for the claim could not have been discovered previously through the exercise of due diligence. That describes a situation in which there's no way that the person could have brought the constitutional claim. That's precisely. Congress didn't leave it there. It went on to add two, the facts underlying the claim would, would show that the applicant is not guilty of the underlying offense. Which is exactly the point that I'm trying to make about stripping out the limitations. Uh, in Section 2244. In, in order to make that point, you have to assume that Congress was adverting to this problem. Uh, and you have to assume that the words second and successive uh, could, could simply have been uh, substituted, or the words subsequent could have been uh, inserted in place of second or successive, which, in fact, uh, is, is a set of phrases that, that are terms of art. Well, so I, th- I, think, I think the argument is a stretch. It's, it, it, I think it is not the case, Your Honor, that, that second or successive is a term of art in the sense that, that EDPA in Section 2244 merely incorporates the old abuse of the writ doctrine, um, as, as this Court may It doesn't clear. necessarily incorporate the old abuse of the writ doctrine, but it seems to me that it does allude to a body of law by which we made, because there was no other law involved, we had to draw conclusions as to whether it was appropriate or not appropriate to bar this claim. That's the kind of art that those words plug into. If they did not want to plug into that, all they had to use was a neutral word like subsequent. Again, Your Honor, Honor, I... I I feel like uh, I, clearly I'm not convincing you, but I think that that we are that the court would be coming awfully convince the others. <laughs> that the court the court is certainly coming awfully close to simply stripping out the limitations on the statute. I think. Isn't isn't B one a description of what our prior success su- successive habeas the d- law was? The, the court the first condition alone. The factual that, predicate for the claim could not have been discovered previously through the exercise of due diligence. Isn't that a fair right, description that's, that's of what point. our prior, second, or successive law was? I, I, and Congress rejects that by adding to it a new, a new number two. So it's impossible to say that it was, it was simply embracing our prior law. Which is precisely the point we try to make in our brief that under McCarthy. Well, so can it be brought as a 1983 action? I don't think it can, Your Honor, and, and I hope I can not? convince the Court why it can. I'd like to start by addressing that position with Mr. Stevenson's concession here this morning that he has reiterated that the chemical composition claim indeed is uh, subject to habeas corpus restrictions. Of course, he seeks to distinguish his own claim from the chemical composition claim on the basis, he says, that his claim does not challenge uh, the sentence itself, but merely a separate and unnecessary uh, procedure. But the procedure he challenges is a procedure for gaining venous access. It goes without... Well, there are other ways to do it. Well, is his point. His, and it is a little curious that the state isn't willing to talk to the prisoner's counsel about considering one of the other ways of doing it. Why is that? Well, let me just, if I could answer in two parts. First, I think 
frankly, that, that on the record in this case, he's just not right about that. The record at pages 91 and 93 of the Joint Appendix makes clear that the specific procedure that he has challenged here, this cut-down procedure, will be used only as a last resort in the event that other means of gaining — What does that mean that — what is the description of the other, the — The percutaneous, percutaneous central line? Percutaneous. Is that something the State — is prepared to use first? By all means, and that's part of the irony of this case. And you make that assurance to us today? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, the, the, the affidavits that we've That will be that attempted. Assurance. Yes, and, and let me just be clear that, that, uh, that the State, of course, has outlined a three-step process in this case. Uh, steps one and two are a central line placement in the femoral vein and a central line placement in the jugular vein in the neck. Both of those, in essence, are percutaneous central line placement. So the parties are in agreement here that the first two procedures attempted should, in fact, be percutaneous central line placement. This uh, cut-down procedure comes into play only in the event that those two procedures fail and, as a last resort, must be used to accomplish the sentence. Are you sure, Mr. Mr. Can I ask you a, a hypothetical question? Because I assume there's merit on the — the, assume, assume you have a case in which a week before the election, the execution — the state tells the inmate that they're going to hang him up by his thumbs and beat him with whips until he dies. And he never expected that. What is his remedy in the in your circuit and in Alabama for trying to stop that? Well, the important point here, and I, if, I, if any, is there a remedy? Sure, absolutely. And I can't agree, of course, with Mr. Stevenson's uh, description of Alabama law. I think that there very clearly are remedies in the state courts. And his argument essentially asks the, the, this court to ignore those the, the entire state system. Uh, with respect to two of the remedies, what, what would the remedy be in Alabama? Would it be a habeas corpus proceeding? Well, he is, of course. Uh, I, I should just be careful about how I answer this question. There is in Alabama a procedure called a Rule 32 petition, which is, is in effect, uh, a, a state habeas petition to challenge uh, things like this. And uh, his petition, his position in his reply brief is that that a Rule 32 petition would have been time barred. That may be true now, but it was not true as of the time that he filed this petition. Well, let's assume, he, assume he's denied relief in the Alabama courts. What can he do? In a, can he get into federal court? Uh, may I and just — so, how? May, may I continue with the Alabama courts just on a minute? Because that's not — that's not uh, — I'm not done with the Alabama courts, in essence. I mean, there, there are other remedies that we've outlined. But you said if this happened today, that Rule 32 procedure would not be available. I think very arguably. It comes down, frankly, to — uh, how you t- at what point the, the statute of limitations begins to run? Our position, of course, the law wasn't changed. You just say more time has gone by that that he could have brought a rule thirty two at the time, but he can't now because more time has gone by. Is that your point? Rule thirty two statute of limitations is a, is a six month statute of limitations that begins running at the time new uh, new factual predicate is discovered. I see that uh, that if, if the statute began to ran. Began, uh, began to run, as, as we would say, on August 19th of 2003, when the record at pages 25 and 26 of the Joint Appendix makes plain that he knew that a cutdown was a possibility as a means of gaining access to his veins, then, yes, that statute has expired. If, as Mr. Stevenson has pointed out to the Court today, that statute began to, ran not, uh, began to run, why do I keep saying that, began to run on October 3rd of 2003, then the truth is he has four or five more days to file that Rule 32 petition. But I want to get to the other remedies, if I can. can, he, can he well, I'm not really day? so much interested in the state remedy. I assume that Alabama judge says it was a terrible crime. He deserves that punishment. And now what does he do? Can he get into federal court? He can get into uh, — And if so, how? He can — of course, by all means, this court retains the discretion, as it always does, to grant 
in an extraordinary circumstance an original writ of habeas corpus. Um, and you I should apply for an original writ in this court. That's his remedy. Well, if not of if, if that's not the remedy, is there a remedy in the district court in Alabama? There is not, I think, a remedy in lower federal courts. But I should just emphasize that this court. Uh, has, 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 has discussed a case very similar to this and dealt with a case very similar to this in Allen versus McCurry, where the Court re- refused to indulge Now, if there is no remedy in the d- Federal District Court, why should there not be a 1983 remedy? Well, because our, our position, Your Honor, is that 1983 is not intended to be used to fill the gaps in the remedial scheme that Congress uh, has specifically set up in the habeas statutes that instead Section 1983 deals with different kinds of claims. Do you think EDPA amended 1983? No, but I, I, the point is, of course, EDPA does not have, in effect, an integration clause in it that, that precludes review of all under all other uh, statutory sources of review. But this Court's decision... Well, if EDPA had never been passed, would there be a remedy under 1983? No, I think then it, then it uh, clearly... It's, it's, a, it's a habeas petition, however you... However you View it in our, in if our the only thing is, say it's a person who's not on death row, who's going to be subjected to uh, this kind of treatment for six days, would he have a remedy under 1983? To be sure, and that, I think, is a, is a categorical distinction. I don't disagree with Mr. Stevenson that, that, a, that, a, that a cut down occurring for purposes of venous access wholly divorced from an execution is indeed uh, a valid conditions of confinement claim, but this simply is not a conditions of confinement case. This is, to be sure, a procedure of uh, the, the means of gaining venous access for the purposes uh, of, of, of carrying out a lethal injection. Venous access, of course, is a necessary predicate, as Nelson has acknowledged in his briefing in this case. You were going to, you were going to tell us that, you know, the sky is going to fall if we find that this is 1983? I think it'll fall pretty hard, Justice Kennedy. I think that if, if, if this Court concludes that, that, that Nelson in this case can, can challenge this, uh, this cut down as a means of gaining venous access, then the, the lower courts will be inundated with, with challenges to all manner of state execution procedures, just as this court was inundated with challenges well, following. There are a lot of ways to deal with that. One, you could say on the merits, if they're not valid, they're not valid. That's cer- if they are valid, why shouldn't they be able to make it? Well, that certainly is one way of, of, of dealing with the problem, Your Honor, but or I Or there's the equitable problem. How long do the appeals take? The I'm district sorry. court says it's not valid. Get out of here. Then there's appeal of the Court of Appeals and then certiorari here. How long does it take? Right. And suppose in a case where there are, say, whips and so forth, he happens, by the way, actually to have a valid claim because they're going to be tortured. All right. Now, you're saying there's no remedy for such a person. In, in answer and indeed, the reason there's no remedy is because the courts are unable to use their normal rules to prevent abusive process. Let me try to answer these various questions in order if I can keep up. With respect to your first question, I think that, to be sure, there is that the district court can always reject the claim, but the problem is that when these claims come in at the last minute and the complaint is chock full of, of inflammatory language, then the district courts, I think, in, in many cases will feel virtually coerced uh, into granting this stay. And the stay itself uh, is, is, an, is an imposition or an impediment to the state's imposition, imposition of the sentence. There's nothing in the language. I mean, as I read the language of 1983, it says there will be an action if I'm subject to the deprivation of a right secured by the Constitution, which is what his claim is. So it fits within the language. To be sure. And there's nothing in the habeas statute that suggests it fits, because habeas is when you're challenging a custody in violation of the Constitution. So the habeas language doesn't apply and 1983 does apply. And there's nothing in Prizer that suggests it fits, because that's where, in fact, we're talking about a challenge to fact or duration, and he's not challenging the fact, and he's not challenging the duration. 
And there's nothing in Heck v. Humphrey because it talks about necessarily implying the invalidity of the conviction or sentence, and he's not talking about the conviction, and he's not talking about the sentence that was given in the judgment anyway. All right, so how is it we get this claim, which risks people who might have a valid claim not getting into court, okay, no. into the language of any prior case or the statute itself? Bear with me. Uh, Section 1983, to be sure, does not exclude this claim as a matter of its text. But this Court in Prizer did make clear uh, that that where where an an action falls within the traditional scope of habeas corpus, that Section 1983 must give way. When there is that intersection, Section 1983 must give way. Now, in answer to Part 2 of the question, to be sure, uh, the habeas corpus, uh, the, the specific language of the habeas corpus statute talks in terms of custody, but for more than 100 years, this Court has dealt with challenges to death sentences in habeas corpus petitions. And indeed, in Your Honor's opinion for the Court in Longcar, uh, this Court said that, um, that you're, you're bear with right me, about that. Uh, that's citing Gomez and, and reiterated that habeas restrictions apply to suits challenging the method of execution regardless of the technical form of action. Gomez uh, was 10 years uh, and a claim that could have been brought much earlier. As was just explained to us, this claim could not have been brought until six days before the scheduled date of execution because it was only at that point that he that he knew about this. So I don't think that Gomez — but I did want to ask you something you said that seemed to me inconsistent with must, what Mr. Stevenson told us. You said that it was only the — that they agreed on what would be the first steps, and that incorporated the percutaneous — I thought — we were told by Mr. Stevenson that, no, everybody agreed on what the first procedure would be. But you then went immediately to the cut-down, and they didn't. There was an intermediate step that you don't have in your protocol that they said would have been more respectful of this man's right to have a painless death. I think that's just not quite right. Percutaneous central line placement simply means central line placement through the skin. But was there whatever labels you use? Was there something else that they asked for that you were not willing to give? They, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to. Yes. I thought I understood from the briefs that there was the first step, everybody agreed if they could do it that way, it would be okay. And then there was something else that the defendant said should have been done before you would ever get to the cut down. And if you got to the cut down, certainly you'd want to have proper medical personnel there to administer it. And the point that I'm trying to make is that, uh, that in fact, those first two st- what the, what the, what the plaintiffs asked for in this case was indeed percutaneous central line placement. That's the label, not that I'm giving it, but that they gave it. That's the procedure that they wanted. And now I'm trying to tell the court that, uh, that, that percutaneous central line placement is a central line placement through the skin, which options one and two, central line placement in the thigh, central line placement in the neck, are indeed both percutaneous central line placement. So, no, there is, I think there is no disagreement here that percutaneous central line placement is the preferred method and will, in fact, be used, uh, a cut-down to be used only if actually necessary. Well, I'll ask Mr. Stevenson to clarify that. Fair enough. And if I can, just in answer to the, to the first question that you were asking me, my, the point that I was making about Gomez at this point in the argument is not necessarily, although I'd like to make this point as well if I have time, uh, an, an abuse point so much. We certainly recognize that the abuse at issue in Gomez is in some sense uh, 
more, uh, more egregious than the abuse here. The point I was simply trying to make in answer, in answer to Justice Breyer's question was that this Court in Lankar pointed to Gomez for the proposition that habeas rules apply to method of execution claims without respect to what label is placed at the top of the pleading. It wasn't an issue in that case, was it? I was simply describing what happened. I mean, it was true. Accurately describing it. Yeah, I accurately described it. Nobody challenged it. So I wouldn't (laughs) think that's terrifically strong precedent for the proposition that that is what should have happened. Well, I think — I think it is fairly clear, Your Honor, from Gomez and Lankar read together that method of execution — But is there anything then other than — other than Lankar, which is describing the posture of the cases that appeared here on a different issue — I thought we had a lot of cases that uh, that say uh, you can bring habeas to yeah. challenge not only uh, the yeah, sentence. That's what I want to know. I want to know which are the ones. I thought that it, it was our law that, that you can bring a habeas uh, action to show that you are not guilty of the sentence. That always seemed to me a very strange uh, uh, formulation, but it's it's been done in a lot of cases. I think it is unquestionably correct, Justice Scalia, that this Court has held that habeas is an appropriate vehicle uh, for a method of execution claim or otherwise. And my point in answer to Justice Breyer is I think that this Court's decisions in Gomez and Lankar read together make come pretty close to saying that it is the appropriate, uh, the appropriate vehicle for challenging a method. So th- those are the two cases which you feel are the strongest support for you. The strongest support, I think, yes, for the, for the fact that, an, that a habeas uh, that habeas is, is the appropriate vehicle for a method of execution claim. And I should just be clear, and we're getting back here to Justice Kennedy's question, that uh, if, if we're rolling back habeas all the way to simply the fact of the sentence, and you can challenge nothing other than to say, uh, uh, I should not have been sentenced to the death penalty, then we have a, an even bigger floodgates issue than I had, had, had at first imagined. District courts tomorrow will be dealing with everything short of I should not have been sentenced to the death penalty under Section 1983 without the protections that Congress built, in, uh, built into EDPA uh, to protect against that very floodgates problem. But this is — you made uh, the point earlier that if this man were just in his cell and under a term of use, that this would be an entirely proper 1983 case. That's not the same for someone who says, I'm innocent of the death penalty. That, that, that one, it, you can say, oh, yes, that's habeas and nothing else. Here you've already said exactly what they're doing to him. If they had done it in order to get access to his vein for some other procedure while he's incarcerated, it would be good, plain 1983 claim. But somehow, when it gets to be connected with how he's going to die, it's no longer 1983. To be sure, there, there is clearly some common-sense line between a pure conditions of confinement claim the fellow in his cell that has to have the cut down for some other purpose, and the, the fellow on death row who has to have the cut down as a means of gaining access to his veins for purposes of accomplishing a lethal injection. Without the venous access, there is no lethal injection. I think there is a very real difference between those two situations, and I can't, as I'm standing here, promise you that I know precisely where that line is between the outer bounds of an execution procedures claim and the outer bounds of a conditions of confinement claim. But what I can tell you is that this claim runs to the very core of the state's execution process. And well, but, but is it? I mean, you, you said with, with, without venous access, uh, there, there is no, uh, there's no execution by lethal injection, but there is execution by lethal injection without cutdown. And, and the question in each case is, is the cutdown gratuitous? Uh, calling the cutdown gratuitous for purposes of injection 
does not challenge the legality of injection. It just strikes me, Justice Souter, that that, with respect, uh, I, I, well, let, let me answer in two ways. First, as I said earlier, I think the record in this case is clear that the cutdown becomes a live issue only in the, in the event that it is necessary. Point two, and I think the more important point, is that it just strikes me as a bad way to administer the rule on a going-forward basis for a district court to have to sift through on a procedure-by-procedure procedure basis to determine, is this procedure, in fact, medically, scientifically necessary to accomplish the sentence, in which case Mr. Stevenson, I think, concedes that it's a habeas petition, but well, What not, you're doing is asking all the courts, including this one, to ignore the very issue and simply say, in effect, under EDPA, we don't care. I mean, we're, we're somewhere between the devil and the deep blue sea here, and, and, and I would suppose there, there ought to be a middle ground. I certainly am not suggesting in any, uh, to, to any extent that, and I don't think it's true, that, uh, that to the extent that, it, say, a, a, a technically unnecessary but nonetheless chosen pr- procedure for gaining venous access is unreviewable. That's the point, that, that's the discussion that I've that's, had. That's, I this. thought, is what he wanted reviewed. He wants to be able to litigate the necessity of this. He claims that it is gratuitous. Right. That's his point. And, and our point is that that is fine if he wants to litigate, and we will litigate and fight him tooth and nail in the appropriate forum. The appropriate forum in There the is no appropriate forum because the appropriate forum was closed to him before you announced, A, that you were going to execute him by injection, and, B, that you were going to use this procedure as a last resort. With respect, Justice Souter, the appropriate forum in this case exists. It exists in the state court system. Uh, it, it, is, it simply is not the case that Mr. S- that, mi- that Mr. Nelson is out of luck entirely without a 1983. Well, let's He's- try this again. What procedure is open to him in the state of Alabama? We were told that no procedure was. Your Honor, I think that there certainly are procedures. We outlined procedures in our brief, namely uh, the two that we have not discussed to this point were uh, that Mr. Nelson could have filed a response to the state's motion to set the execution date, and two, he could have filed a motion to stay the execution in state court. Now, well, we're talking about now. What is open to the prisoner today those, in Alabama? Those procedures, Your Honor, are in fact open to, to the prisoner today because when this court stayed the execution, the death warrant expired. We will now need to go back to the Alabama Supreme Court, even, even, even in the event that we prevail here, ask for a new death warrant, at which point Mr. Nelson can, can, can participate in the state process. And do you represent he can get a hearing on the merits of his arguments in one of those procedures? What I, what I can represent to the Court is that I am certainly not aware of any procedural bars that exist to him participating in either one of those processes, and that certainly with respect to Mr. Nelson, we would, we would be glad to waive any procedural bar that did exist. We would certainly expect to, uh, So that there could be a factual hearing on, on the necessity and, of the, and, the, and the medical propriety of these procedures? Sure. If he, if he chooses, as, as we hope he will, uh, as we hope he would have and now hope he will to participate in the state process, he will get a hearing on the merits of his Eighth Amendment claim. And again, I'm but, not but suggesting... If, but, but if he does and loses... His only access to the federal courts is by petition for original writ here. That's right, and that's that's very close, Your Honor, to this to the very situation that this court dealt with well, in Allen versus McCurry. He would also have the opportunity to seek a stay, would he not, from this court, from the final decision of the uh, Alabama courts saying that his Eighth Amendment claim. To, 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 to be sure, this court always retains certain jurisdiction over merits determinations of state courts. Uh, would we have to go into the question of whether that's a suspension of the writ of habeas corpus? In a case, say, much worse than this one, it's horrendous. He couldn't raise it before. No access to a federal district court. 
I don't think, Justice Breyer, that this case even presents a suspension clause. No, no, no. We just imagine this case with much horrible circumstance, because your rule of law is the same, irrespective of the horror of the circumstance. So there'd be no claim but a state court for a person who could never have brought a federal habeas because the issue didn't arise. Is that a suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, not in time of war? I think it's not in this court. And you'd refer me, because there's only a minute, to read on that, so I become convinced what? Please read Felker. Felker. This Court's decision in Felker is quite clear that, pointing specifically to Section 2244, this Court said, Congress, by and large, gets to make judgments about the scope of the writ. Section 2244 is not a suspension. We're not even in the ballpark of an across-the-board uh, bar on, on jurisdiction. But if we get, we're doing 1983, then there's no, there's no exhaustion requirement. That's, that's certainly true, but I guess that assumes that, that I'm wrong about, about the nature of this claim. Our position, of course, is I've tried to convince the well, Court. Well, you said it is a good 1983 claim, except if it, if it is in relation to the administration of the death sentence. You're right. That's right, Your Honor. And this will give me, I think, a, a, as good an opportunity as I can to try to sum up our position in this case. We have certainly made the argument that a challenge to a state's means of gaining venous access, a challenge to, to a procedure for carrying out an execution, and it is in and of itself uh, should be understood to be a challenge to sentence itself and subject to habeas corpus restrictions. The state of Miki, the 30 states who have participated in this case on our behalf, have made very strongly the argument that a, that a stay of execution in and of itself uh, uh, should be understood as a challenge to the sentence. The Court need not go so far in either respect with us today. All we ask the Court to hold today is that where, a, where an inmate both challenges a procedure for carrying out his execution and, in, in essence, tries to tell the state dictate to the state how to go about conducting that execution and seeks a stay of that execution uh, to give himself time to engage in that reordering of the process, that that should be understood as a challenge to the sentence. May I? Thank you, Mr. Newsom. Uh, Mr. Stevenson, you have eight minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd, I'd like to start first by, by trying desperately to, to, to inform this Court that there is no remedy available uh, to Mr. Nelson in state court. I appreciate Mr. Newsom's argument on this point, but Rule 32 is not an available option. But before you go into that, would you clarify one thing for me? Did they object in the district court to, on the ground there was a failure to exhaust state remedies? No, they did not. No, Justice Stevenson, uh, there's never been any. And the uh, district court did not rule on uh, the claim that there was. A- absolutely. And the problem here is, again, uh, none of these issues were, were permitted to, to develop. But let me just start with the state court question. Rule 32 uh, has the same kind of factual innocence requirement for the six-month timeline that Mr. Newsom is talking about. Yes, you can file a new successive state court petition under Rule 32, but just as you have to in the federal context, the state court petition has to allege factual innocence. In footnote 19 of our reply brief, I cite a case, Tarver versus State. It's a case where immediately before an execution, prosecutor admitted that he had excluded uh, uh, African-Americans from jury service in a discriminatory manner. We said, here's our new evidence. The execution be, should be stopped. The Court of Criminal Appeals and the Alabama Supreme Court held, no. New evidence claims must go to factual innocence. That's 32.1E. There is no remedy available. Uh, Mr. Newsom talks about filing something in the State Supreme Court. The State Supreme Court of Alabama has no jurisdiction. That's a little different from a case that alleges a current impending constitutional violation. Yes, Your Honor, and and I could speak to that, because in the other case we cited in footnote 19, we did that too. In the first Tarver case, this Court had granted cert on the constitutionality of execution by electrocution. 
case was pending at this court. We went to the state courts of Alabama saying, look, state Supreme, United States Supreme Court is about to review this. We've got new evidence that electrocutions in Alabama are being conducted in an unconstitutional manner. Let us in. No. Your method of execution claim is not cognizable because the two-year statute of limitation at that time is an absolute bar. The courts have no jurisdiction to adjudicate any constitutional claim unless it is a new evidence, innocence claim. The Alabama Supreme Court has no jurisdiction to give us a merits review on this issue. We were told there were a couple of other methods besides Rule 32. There are none, um, Justice O'Connor. The only thing we could do is file a motion for a stay. At, at the point at which the stay motion was requested here, April of 2000, Mr. Nelson didn't want to stay. He doesn't want a stay of execution. He actually wants his execution to be carried out. Well, he did ask for a stay, you said, in order that this could be resolved. A- a- so, absolutely. as I understand it, he does want a stay in order that this can be heard. Well, he wants a stay to uh, — he wants uh, to enjoin the kind of conduct that we're talking about here. But filing a stay motion in the Alabama Supreme Court would not get him merits review where we could present the kind of facts that we're now presenting. And I have to say that access to the federal courts in this case has really changed the state's position. Nothing that we've been talking about here this afternoon about what they intend to do was ever uh, presented to Mr. Nelson until he got in front of the federal judge. In front of the federal judge, they said for the first time, we'll try to do a peripheral stick, not percutaneous invasion. It's a different procedure. At page 109 of our joint appendix, the district court finds, and I'm reading here, the defendants have offered no explanation as to why they intend to use a cut-down procedure instead of a percutaneous central line placement. They have never made that offer. They're making it here today. It's because we're in court. And, of course, we can't get to court unless this court recognizes our authority to bring a legitimate uh, challenge that does not attempt to invalidate his conviction or sentence. There is a gap. Well, what we heard today, does that satisfy the prisoner's request that these all of these other things be used first? Well, if, if the state had of then and would now uh, concede that percutaneous line placement would be an acceptable method, then yes, that's all we were seeking. But, of course, without a remedy. Is that not what was said today? Well, it's not said in a way that we can enforce, Your Honor. Until we can go to the district court, go to a court, and enforce any of these representations, we are at risk. And that's all we're asking. That's all Mr. Nelson asked in the first instance. And the irony, of course, is if it had been permitted to proceed, I think we would have resolved this. He'd already be executed. And I think their conduct today strengthens that position. And that's why we would urgently ask this court to reverse the rule that the Eleventh Circuit is now applying, which bars prisoners like Mr. Nelson from getting federal review. It's not asking a lot, and I understand the fears, but I don't agree with Mr. Newsom that this is opening up anything. People can file complaints now. They could have done it for the last 20 years. But district courts are not obligated to review those complaints. The PLRA puts restrictions on 1983 actions. The habeas corpus right that permits uh, creates restrictions. What this court shouldn't do out of fear is to block prisoners like Mr. Nelson, who have legitimate constitutional complaints, from getting remedies that are precisely the kinds of claims that could and should be resolved in the manner that they've been discussed about discussed today easily. We tried to exhaust administrative remedies, but until we got in front of a federal judge, no one would allow us to be heard. And that's simply the problem that we face in this case and why relief is required. And I think that's why there ought to be the kind of federal, federal remedy uh, that Justice Breyer uh, uh, has indicated. Because without it, uh, our prisons are at risk. Um, unless there are further questions, I'll, I'll, I'll rest. Thank you, Mr. Stevenson. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.